Chapter 18 of Life in the Clearings versus the Bush by Susanna Moody Goat Island Adown Niagara's giant steep, the foaming breakers crowding leap, with wild, tumultuous roar. The mighty din ascends on high, in deafening thunder to the sky, and shakes the rocky shore. The lady with the ringlets was absent with her party from the tea-table. I was not sorry to learn that she was gone. I had conceived a prejudice against her from the remark I heard her make about the falls. Her gustativeness predominated so largely over her ideality that she reminded me of a young lady who, after describing to me a supper of which, by her own account, she had largely partaken, said, with a candour, almost shocking in its simplicity. "'To tell you the plain truth, my dear Mrs. M., my art—she was English, and cockney, and dreadfully mangled the letter H, whenever it stumbled into a speech—is in my stomach.' The cup of excellent tea was most refreshing after the fatigues of the day, and while enjoying it I got into an agreeable chat with several pleasant people. But we were all strangers, even in name to each other.' The night was misty and intensely dark, without moon or stars. How I longed for one glimpse of the former, to shed, if only a wandering gleam, upon the falls. The awful music of the continuous roar filled the heavens, and jarred the windows of the building with the tremulous motion we feel on board a steamboat. And then I amused myself with picturing them, during one of our desolating thunderstorms, leaping into existence out of the dense darkness, when revealed by the broad red flashes of lightning, and I wished that my limited means would allow me to remain long enough in their vicinity, to see them under every change of season and weather. But it was not to be, and after peering long and anxiously into the dark night, I retreated into an unoccupied sofa in a distant part of the saloon, to watch and listen to all that was passing around me. Two young American ladies, not of a highly educated class, were engaged in a lively conversation with two dashing English officers, who, for their own amusement, were practising upon their credulity and flattering their national prejudices with the most depreciating marks on England and the English people. "'I am English,' cried number one but I am no great admirer of her people and institutions. The Americans beat them hollow. "'All the world thinks so but themselves,' said the younger lady. "'They are such a vain, arrogant set.' "'Decidedly so. The men are bad enough. But the women, I dare say, you have heard them called handsome?' "'Ah, yes,' in a very lively tone. "'But I never believed it. I never in my life saw a pretty Englishwoman among all that I have seen in New York. To my thinking, they are a sad set of frights. Stiff, formal, and repulsive. They dress in shocking bad taste, and consider themselves and their uncouth fashions as the standards of perfection. My dear madam, you are right. They are odious creatures. The beauty for which they were once renowned has vanished with the last generation. Our modern English girls are decided barbarians. It is impossible to meet with a pretty Englishwoman nowadays. I have made a vow to cut them all together, and if I ever commit such a foolish thing as matrimony, to take to myself an American wife. 
"'Are you in earnest?' with a very fascinating smile, and flashing upon him her fine dark eyes. "'Quite so. But now you must not take me for a rich English collabs in search of a wife. I am an unfortunate scapegrace, have run out of all my means, and am not worth a York shilling to jingle on a tombstone. I was obliged to borrow money of my landlord. He's a capital fellow, to pay my washerwoman's bill this morning.' "'So don't fall in love with me. "'I assure you on my honour it would be a bad speck.' "'Don't be alarmed,' returned the dark-eyed girl, "'evidently much pleased with her odd companion. "'Are you very young?' "'I was never young. "'My mother told me that I had cut my wisdom teeth when I was born. "'I was wide awake too, like your clever people, "'and have kept my eyes open ever since.' "'You have seen a great deal of the world?' "'Yes, too much of it. "'But tis a tolerable world to live in, after all.' "'Were you ever in the United States?' "'Only crossed from the other side a few days ago. "'Did you not notice the arrival of Mr. P. "'among the list of distinguished foreigners "'that honoured your great city with their presence?' "'And what struck you most when you got there?' "'Oh, the beauty and elegance of the women, of course. "'You flatter us.' "'Fact upon honour, with a quizzical application of his hand to his heart. "'What did you admire in them?' "'They're straight up-and-down figures. "'They have no vulgar redundancies, no red cheeks and pug noses, "'and then their voices are so sweet and harmonious, "'their pronunciation so correct, "'so every way superior to the boisterous, hearty frankness of our British girls.' "'English women have very bad noses. I have remarked that. "'And they are so horribly fat, and they laugh so loud, and talk in such a high key. "'My, I often wondered where they learned their manners.' "'Oh, tis all natural to them. It comes to them without teaching.' "'I have been told that London is a shocking place.' "'Dreadful! And the climate is disgusting. It rains there every day.' and fogs are so prevalent that during the winter months they burn candles all day to see to eat. As to the sun, he never comes out but once or twice during the summer, just to let us know that he has not been struck out of creation. And the streets, my dear young lady, are so filthy that the women have to wear pattens in their carriages. You don't say! "'just to keep their petticoats out of the mud, "'which is so deep that it penetrates through the bottom of the carriages. "'I will never go to England, I declare.' "'You will be better appreciated in your free and glorious country. "'Slavery thrives there, and you make slaves of us poor men. "'Now do stop there, and have done with your blarney.' "'Blarney? I'm not Irish. "'Englishmen always speak the truth when talking to the ladies.' Here he paused, quite out of breath, and his companion in mischief commenced with the other lady. "'Who is that tall, stout, handsome man with the fat lady on his arm, who has just entered the room?' "'That's an American from the South. He's worth his weight in gold, and that fleshy woman's his wife. My, is he not handsome? And he's so clever, one of our greatest senators.' "'If size makes a great man,' "'and he has the distinguished honour of being one of your senators. "'He must be a great, a very great man.' "'He's a splendid orator. You should hear him speak.' 
He has kept his mouth shut all day, and when he does open it, it is only to speak in French to his wife. My curiosity is excited. It would be quite a treat to hear him talk on any subject. When he speaks, it's always to the purpose. But there's no one here who is able to appreciate talents like his. He's an American aristocrat. We have no aristocrats with us. He's a great slave owner and immensely rich. Very substantial claims to distinction, I must confess. You are wiser in these matters than we are. What do you think of Canada? I don't know. It's all very well for a young place. I only came here with sister last night. We are on our way to Quebec to visit friends. We have no friends in Canada. We want to see Lord Elgin. Lord Elgin? Yes. We have seen a great many curious things, but we have never seen an English lord. And you are going to Quebec for no other purpose than to look at Lord Elgin? His lordship should feel himself highly flattered. What sort of an animal do you suppose him to be? A man, of course, but I assure you that the Boston ladies thought a great deal of him. Sister and I have plenty of time and money at our disposal, and we wanted to see if their opinion was correct. Well, I hope you may be gratified and agree with the Boston ladies that he is a very clever man. Is he handsome? He has an English nose. Oh, shocking! A decided Anglo Saxon face. I'm sure I shan't admire him. But I'll not anticipate. A man may be a fine looking fellow, in spite of his nose. But what do you think of the falls? Well, I have not quite made up my mind about them. I should like to ride down to the edge of the river to look at them from below. I will order a carriage tomorrow morning and drive you down. Thank you. I can do that for myself if I have a mind to. I should like to ride down on horseback. The path is too steep. No one ventures down that terrible road on horseback. But I am a capital rider. No matter. They use cows for that purpose here. Cows? They are safe, sure footed animals. All the ladies ride down to the falls on cows. Are they fools? Wise women. Did you not see that fine drove of cows past the hotel at sunset? I did. I thought they were driven into the yard to be milked. Why, yes, but those cows are making Mr. S.'s fortune. They serve a double purpose, providing delicious butter and cream for his customers, and acting as horses for the ladies. I will pick out the most docile among them for your excursion tomorrow morning, and see it bridled and saddled myself. This was too much for the gravity of any one. My son in law ran out of the room, and I laughed out loud. The poor girls began to find out that they were sold, and retreated into the balcony. An hour afterwards, as I was pacing through the long gallery that led to our sleeping apartment, one of the many doors on either side softly opened, and the youngest of these bright eyed damsels stole out. I want to ask you a question, she said, laying her very white hand confidingly on my arm. Were those Englishmen quizzing my sister and me? Need you ask that question? said I, not a little amused at her simplicity. I never suspected it till I saw your son laughing to himself, and then I guessed something was wrong. It was a great shame of those rude fellows to amuse themselves at our expense. 
"'But your son is quite a different person, so handsome and gentlemanly. "'We admire him so much. Is he married?' "'His wife is my daughter.' "'I can't tell why my answer struck the fair inquirer dumb. "'She drew back suddenly into her chamber, "'and closed the door without biding me good-night. "'And that was the last time I saw or heard of her and her companion.' A summer spent at the Clifton House would elicit more extraordinary traits of character than could be gathered from the chit-chat of a dozen novels, thought I, as I paced on to number fifty, the last room on the long tier. I was up the next morning to see the falls by sunrise, and was amply repaid for leaving my warm bed and encountering the bright, bracing morning air by two hours' enjoyment of solemn converse alone with God and Niagara. The sun had not yet lifted his majestic head above the pine forest, or chased with his beams the dark shadows of night that rested within the curved sides of the great horseshoe. The waters looked black as they rolled in vast smooth masses downward, till, meeting the projecting rocks, they were tossed into the air in clouds of dazzling foam, so pure, so stainlessly white, when contrasted with darkness, that they look as if belonging to heaven rather than to earth. Anon that dancing, feathery tumult of foam catches a rosy gleam from the coming day. A long stream of sunlight touches the centre of the mighty arch, and transforms the black waters into a mass of smooth, transparent emerald green, and the spray flashes with myriads of rubies and diamonds, while the American fall still rolls and thunders on in cold, pure whiteness, Goat Island and its crest of dark pines shrouding it in a robe of gloom. The voice of the waters rising amidst the silence that reigns at that lovely calm hour sounds sonorous and grand. Be still, O my soul! Earth is pouring to her Creator her morning anthem of solemn praise. Earth, how beautiful thou art! When will men be worthy of the paradise in which they are placed? Did our first father, amidst the fresh young beauty of his Eden, ever gaze upon a spectacle more worthy of his admiration than this? We'll accept those moments when he held converse with God amid the cool shades of that delicious garden. "'That's a sublime sight,' said a voice near me. I turned and found the old American gentleman at my side. "'I can see a change in the appearance of these falls,' he continued. "'Since I visited them some forty years ago, time changes everything. I feel that I am changed since then.' I was young and active, and clambered about these rugged banks with the careless hardihood of a boy who pants for excitement and adventure, and how I enjoyed my visit to this place. A change has taken place. I can scarcely describe in what respect, but it looks to me very different to what it did then. Perhaps, I suggested, the fall of that large portion of the table rock has made the alteration you describe. "'You have just hit it,' he said. "'I forgot the circumstance. "'The horseshoe is not so perfect as it was.' "'Could these falls ever have receded from Queenston?' said I. "'He turned to me with a quick smile. "'If they have, my dear madam, 
the world is much older by thousands of ages than we give it credit for. But, continued he, gazing at the mighty object in dispute, it is possible that these falls are of more recent date than the creation of the world. An earthquake may have rent the deep chasm that forms the bed of the river, and in a few seconds of time the same cause might break down that mighty barrier and drain the upper lakes by converting a large part of your fine province into another inland sea. But this is all theory. Fancy, you know, is free, and I often amuse myself by speculating on these things. Your daughter, I hope, is not ill, I said. I did not see her at tea last night with her little son. Instead of his usual shrewd smile, the old man laughed heartily. So you take that young lady for my daughter? Is she not? The child, however, must be your grandson, for he is the picture of you. I flatter myself that he is. That young lady is my wife, that little boy my son. Isn't he a fine, clever little chap? And his keen grey eye brightened at the glowing promise of his boy. I have another, younger than him. Heavens, thought I, what a mistake I have made. How M will laugh at me, and how delighted this old man seems with my confusion. I am always making these odd blunders. Not long ago I mistook a very old-looking young man for his father, and congratulated him on his daughter's marriage, and asked a young bride who was returning her calls, and who greatly resembled a married cousin who lived in the same town, how her baby was. And now I had taken a man's wife for his daughter, his son for a grandson, but I comforted myself with the idea that the vast disparity between their ages was some excuse, and so slipped past one of the horns of that dilemma. As soon as we had taken breakfast, we set off in company with the American and his little boy to pay a visit to Goat Island and to look at the falls from the American side. The child fully realized his father's description. He was a charming, frank, graceful boy, full of life and intelligence, and enjoyed the excitement of crossing the river and the beauties it revealed to us, with a keen appreciation of the scene, which would have been incomprehensible to some of the wonder-seekers we had met the day before. All nature contributed to heighten our enjoyment. The heavens were so blue and cloudless, the air so clear and transparent, the changing tints on the autumnal foliage so rich, the sun so bright and warm, that we seemed surrounded by an enchanted atmosphere, and the very consciousness of existence was delightful. But, with those descending floods of light towering above us, and filling the echoing shores with their sublime melody, we were doubly blessed. When our little boat touched the American shore, the question arose— as to which method would be best to adopt in ascending the giddy height. A covered way leads to the top of the bank, which is more than two hundred feet in perpendicular height. Up this steep our ingenious neighbours have constructed, on an inclined plane of boards, a railway, on which two cars run in such a manner that the weight of the descending car draws up the other to the top of the bank. Both are secured by a strong cable, by the side of this railway, and under the same roof, two hundred steps lead to the road above. I was too weak to attempt the formidable flight of steps, and though 
I felt rather cowardly while looking at the giddy ascent of the cars. There was no alternative between choosing one or the other, or remaining behind. The American and his little boy were already in the car, and I took my seat behind them. When we were half-way, the question rose in my mind, What if the cable should give way? Where should we land? You'll know that when the tail breaks, as the Highlander said, when holding on to the wild boar, and I shut my eyes, determined not to disturb my mind, or waken my fears by another glance below. Why do you shut your eyes? said the American. I thought the English were all brave. I never was a coward till after I came to North America, said I, laughing. And I felt that I ought to be brave as a lion, and not injure the reputation of my glorious country by such childish fears. When the cars stopped, we parted company with the American and his brave little son. He had friends to visit in Manchester, and I saw them no more. Our path lay through a pretty shaded grove to the village. Groups of Indian women and children were reposing beneath the shade of the trees, working at their pretty wares, which they offered for sale as we passed by. Following the winding of the road, we crossed a rural bridge, from which we enjoyed a fine view of the glorious rapids and entered Goat Island. This beautiful spot is still in forest, but the underbrush has been cleared away and a path cut entirely round it. The trunks of these trees are entirely covered with the names and initials of persons who at different times have visited the spot, and they present the most curious appearance. After a few minutes' walk through the woods, we reach the bank of the river, which here is not very high, and is covered with evergreen shrubs and wild flowers, and here the wide world of tumbling waters are flashing and foaming in the sunlight, leaping and racing round the rocky, pine-covered islands that vainly oppose their frantic course. Oh, how I longed to stem their unstemmed tides, to land upon those magic islands which the foot of man or beast never trod, whose beauty and verdure are guarded by the stern hand of death. The falls are more wonderful, but not more beautiful, than this sublime confusion and din of waters. Of glad rejoicing waters, of living leaping waters, their eternal voice and motion might truly be termed the joy of waves. On the American side, the view of the great cataracts is not so awful and overwhelming, but they are more beautiful in detail, and present so many exquisite pictures to the eye. They are more involved in mystery, as it were, and so much is left for the imagination to combine into every varied form of beauty. You look down into the profound abyss. You are wetted with that shower of silvery spray that rises higher than the treetops and which gives you in that soft rain an actual consciousness of its living presence. I did not cross the bridge, which extends within a few yards of the great plunge, or climb to the top of the tower, for my strength had so entirely failed me that it was with difficulty I could retrace my steps. I sat for about an hour beneath the shadow of the trees, feasting my soul with beauty and with reluctance that drew tears from my eyes, 
bade adieu to the enchanting spot, not for ever, I hope, for should God prolong my life, I shall try and visit the falls again. Like every perfect work, the more frequently and closely they are examined, the more wonderful they must appear. The mind and eye can never weary of such an astonishing combination of sublimity and power. We stopped at a pretty cottage at the edge of the wood to get a glass of water and to buy some peaches. For these we had to pay treble the price at which they could be procured at Toronto. But they proved a delicious refreshment. The day was very warm, and I was parched with thirst. Had time permitted, I should have enjoyed greatly a ramble through the town. As it was, my brief acquaintance with the American shores left a very pleasing impression on my mind. The little that I have seen of intelligent, well-educated Americans has given me a very high opinion of the people. Britain may be proud of these noble scions from the parent-tree, whose frame, like their own, is destined to fill the world. The great daughter of a great mother, America claims renown for her lawful inheritance, and it is to be deeply regretted that any petty jealousy or party feelings should ever create a rivalry between countries so closely united by the ties of blood, whose origin, language, religion, and genius are the same, whose industry, energy, and perseverance derived from their British sires have procured for them the lofty position they hold, and made them independent of the despots of earth. THE LAND OF OUR BIRTH There is not a spot in this wide-peopled earth so dear to the heart as the land of our birth. Tis the home of our childhood, the beautiful spot, by memory retained when all else is forgot. May the blessing of God ever hallow the sod, and its valleys and hills by our children be trod. Can the language of strangers, in accents unknown, send a thrill to the bosom like that of our own? The face may be fair, and the smile may be bland, but it breathes not the tones of our dear native land. There's no spot on earth, like the home of our birth, where heroes keep guard o'er the altar and hearth. How sweet is the language that taught us to blend the dear names of father, of husband and friend, that taught us to lisp on our mother's fond breast the ballads she sang as she rocked us to rest. May the blessing of God ever hallow the sod, and its hills and valleys by our children be trod. May old England long lift her white crest o'er the wave, the birthplace of science, the home of the brave. In her cities may peace and prosperity dwell, may her daughters in beauty and virtue excel. May their beauty and worth bless the land of their birth, while heroes keep guard o'er the altar and hearth. End of chapter 18